America is facing a national energy crisis. On May 7, 2021, one of the largest refined fuel pipelines in the United States, the Colonial Pipeline, experienced a cyber attack that shut down fuel delivery between the Gulf Coast and the East Coast. The pipeline itself spans almost 5,500 miles and carries millions of gallons of fuel per day. It was the target of ransomware, a scheme where attackers seize control of the computer systems using code and then demand money to release the systems back to the company. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Today, we'll be discussing the subject of how to quantify claims costs following a ransomware attack. It gives us great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Anthony Hess, the CEO of Aceris. Anthony is an expert on this subject matter and will hopefully provide some further explanation and illustrations of how ship owners may better assess this risk. So Anthony, thank you for agreeing to speak with us today to address some of the difficult questions faced by our ship owner clients when they try to assess their company's financial exposure to ransomware attacks. Before we dive into the detail uh, of this podcast, it would be great if, uh, if you could tell our listeners um, a little bit about you and your company's background so that we might gain a better understanding of your expertise in the, this evolving area of maritime claims. Sure, absolutely. Happy to, happy to talk about that. So I come from a technology-focused background. My professional tech career began somewhat accidentally while I was an aerospace mechanical engineering student in, in the late 90s. I, was, I just happened to have a, a sort of knack for technology as, as well as a bit on the engineering side. But as I found I was better at technology, when I graduated from university, I continued along that path rather than the engineering path but I've never really lost my love of the more difficult technical things outside of IT. And since then, so since then, I've been in a variety of roles over the years, in different IT cybersecurity roles. And in 2014, I moved into the insurance industry, probably like most other people, a bit accidentally. I've had a, a particular focus on cyber claims and, and cyber incident response since that time. So just in terms of the numbers we're talking about, I, I worked for a leading insurer for a while. I worked for KPMG and worked for an, another a cyber consultancy. So I, I think in total, the teams I've run have handled well into the thousands of claims. In 2020, my co-founder and I decided to go ahead and create a Ceres because we thought we could just do a, a really a, a better job than others at serving the insurance industry and their insureds in terms of preventing, mitigating, and responding to cyber incidents. We are one of Charles Taylor's DFIR partners. So that's digital forensics and incident response that would be called in the event of a cyber incident. Really as a company, our core expertise is very focused on the claim side, on the, the cyber response side. And so we've managed and handled a, a variety of incident types. The most common ones people are seeing today are ransomware. Definitely everybody's heard about ransomware. But business email compromise is also very common. And there's other incident types we see as well. Websites are still getting hacked. We're still getting 
tax information stolen from PCs. There's a, a variety of lesser known incident types still out there. In terms of our connections with Maritime, we are very response focused. So what that's led us to do as a company, we've done a lot of the onshore incidents, which is where the, the incidents are, are really happening in the sector, as well as a number of other sectors. Uh, and we've also, because we're aware of it as being a potential future issue, augmented our internal IR capabilities with some proactive OT cybersecurity experts from partners. And so between the two of them, you combine your capability at handling incidents, your understanding of how to manage it, how to, to, to structure the, the analyzing process, and you combine the, the detailed cybersecurity expertise. Okay, great. Thanks for that. And I think you touched upon a couple of interesting points there. I think one is certainly is something we've come to realize here at Shoreline is the response to these cyber incidents are definitely collaborative. They take a number of different participants involved in the response to provide that holistic approach to a resolution. In, in many respects, that's where our paths have crossed in terms of the work you've done with Charles Taylor Adjusting, who obviously are the, the named response organization on our policy of insurance. Turning now to the issue of the podcast, really, which I think will be interesting to our ship owner clients, and that really revolves around the response to a, a cyber attack on a shipping company. At a time when much of the rhetoric in the sort of shipping press revolves around the exclusion of silent cyber risk from property insurance policies. I think it's important to, to really focus from our perspective on where a lot of the attritional losses occur. And that's outside of those sort of disaster scenarios. It's more akin to the sort of enterprise risk that you've been discussing in terms of the land-based risk that a lot of these ship owning companies assume, uh, much in the same way as companies in any, any other industry sector. But what we'd really like to look at if we may, from you know your experience, the ship owners when they come to us looking for insurance, you know, they often question what sort of insurable limit they need. Often looking to try and quantify what their losses might be as a consequence of one of these cyber attacks. So I think it would be helpful if we perhaps look at the application of cyber insurance to a shipping company, and potentially walk through a loss scenario in terms of a mid-sized company, maybe 100 million turnover, maybe 30 vessels. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it is interesting. I think looking at the silent cyber, the exclusions being made and the potential gaps, and it makes sense that a lot of people are really focused on that. It makes sense with the IMO guidance that people are focused on what could happen on a ship. An attack against one of those kind of environments could potentially be very catastrophic and it, and it is a safety issue. However, with all of that said, if you're looking at the real financial risk that we're all facing today, rather than wondering what the future is going to be, we're seeing a much greater impact from traditional onshore cyber attacks. These cyber attacks are, are very capable and it's very common that an entire business is taken offline for an extended period of time. And any business that requires IT, which is most of them nowadays, they really have to think, how could I function for a month if I had no IT systems, if I couldn't access any of my data? Even the ones you wouldn't think have a heavy dependence on IT, sometimes you can be very surprised. And, and I often find that businesses are very surprised when they're not tech-heavy businesses and they lose their IT systems and suddenly their business doesn't function. The situation isn't that the attacks against navigation systems or you know, that cyber neighbor piracy is impossible or, or can't exist. But when you look at the frequencies, 
we're seeing a, a massive order of magnitude difference. There's an entire economy built around these attacks on office systems. They don't need to understand shipping. They don't need to understand the shipping system. They can use the exact same attack they're doing against everybody else. They can do it at scale. There's teams, there's professional services built within these different attacker groups that are going after these systems. It's hitting, and this is really a, a change over the past few years, it's hitting everyone. There was a time where a lot of sectors could consider themselves relatively immune because they weren't targets or smaller companies could consider themselves immune. But that's really not the case nowadays. It's, it's large or small, no matter what type of data they hold. It is a there is a very big focus on the economic motive for these attackers, which in a sense makes it simpler to understand. Unfortunately, it also means you know, where the attack can be against essentially anyone. And it, as I mentioned earlier, we're really seeing mostly two types of cyber attacks right now. The one that's getting a lot of press is ransomware. And the reason that is, is because it will take you completely offline with an extraordinary level of damage possible very quickly. Just to define what ransomware is, that's when an attacker gets into your system, encrypts your data, and then holds it to ransom and will not release the data back to you unless you pay money. The other thing we're seeing a lot of is called business email compromise. And what that means is somebody gets into your email system and what they're able to do then is try to trick other people who are normally communicating with that individual to transfer funds fraudulently. In the latter case, the majority of the losses is generally covered under either a crime policy or a, a cybercrime coverage within a policy. It, it is important to understand positioning on that. If you have a policy, I would say the majority of the losses on business email compromise come from that funds transfer fraud. So coming back to ransomware, focusing on that, which again is the very large impact attack we're seeing these days. I have seen a lot of different information over the years in terms of whether it's going up or it's going down. Certainly we do know the claims frequency is going up. And we know with a high degree of certainty that big attacks are increasing. The big impactful ones, ransomware five or six years ago, you know, were much more focused on mass, small numbers, even home users might have been attacked because the ransoms were three to 600 pounds or three to $600. They were tiny. Nowadays, the, the frequency and the severity has really gone up to an extraordinary degree. We've also seen over the past couple of years, a big focus by attackers on specifically targeting different companies rather than just sending it out to everyone and seeing who bites. And what that means is they really focus on extracting the maximum ransom and causing the maximum amount of damage in every attack. Uh, making it even worse, once that stopped being as effective as they wanted, they started shifting to actually steal data from your environment before they encrypt it. So they have your data. There's been a data breach at this point, and now they're going to try to ransom it back to you to keep them from leaking it. It's really terrifying because if you think about that versus how it used to be a number of years ago, it used to be perhaps they were going after some kind of identity data, some healthcare data, perhaps some credit card numbers. It was relatively easy to understand what they were going to go after. Now you have to look at your business and think, okay, what do I have that would be really embarrassing if somebody find out? And so that is really pretty terrifying. And that's a recent trend. They really, the attackers, they really want you to pay that ransom. So I think something else we've seen with these attacks getting much larger, 
And you know, Colonial Pipeline is a great example. It was a, it was a big one in the news the last couple of weeks in the U.S. Even if you're not attacking an external system, the pipeline systems, the OT systems, the operational technology systems that were in place there had to be shut down or, or believed to have needed to be shut down by the people on that incident because of the fact that the office systems were taken offline. So even if the attack wasn't against the pipeline itself, the impact was the same. The business had to be shut down and had a massive knock-on effect against a number of other places in the economy, in the chain, with gas shortages and, and all these kinds of things. So it's really, that is an outcome of larger ransomware attacks that are much more aggressive at spreading through an office. You come in and, and all of a sudden, it's going to have this impact against something it wasn't designed to impact. Some of the attacks you can look at recently, some of the big ones, I think I always like to bring up Maersk, even though it's almost potentially overused in the maritime industry. I think it's important because that was really, I think of it as one of the granddaddies of the big cyber uh, ransomware incidents. Before that, ransomware was really generally quite tiny. And then in the spring of 2017, was, it was probably a bit of a watershed moment in that we had not Petya, which was one type of ransomware, as well as WannaCry, which was another kind of ransomware. And they both were relatively similar to newer ransomware strains versus how it used to be before that, in that they were big impacts. They were big, taking down large numbers of systems. In the case of Maersk, it, they weren't even focused. That was an accident. Piece of malware got loose that was intended to attack another target, and it managed to take out and cause you know substantial damage. I think that was really the beginning for us in seeing big cyber attacks. And there was others around that time that were hit by NotPetya that saw impacts for weeks. There, there was hospitals down for one to two months. It was really pretty incredible. And I think in a sense that inspired more recent attacks as well, because you started to see after that, the realization among the attackers that they could take down not just a system, it wasn't just, we're going to lock your individual PC or we're going to lock your individual server. It was, we're going to take down your entire company and we're going to hold it to ransom. Some of the more, more recent ones that you almost lose track of because there's been so many, but some of the most recent attacks in, in 2020, back into 2020, the CMA, uh, CGM was hit by ransomware. MSC was hit by malware that shut down their website. Port of Kennewick ransomware shut down the port's IT systems. And the demand there wasn't incredibly massive, but it was still substantial compared to a small port, a small inland port in, in Washington. And it was a 200,000 US dollar ransom, um, which was not paid. And as a result of that, there's a lot of downtime you see there. Another case I, I like to point at in the maritime industry was actually just this week where the steamship authority in Massachusetts was taken offline. And so... Again, they're not targeting the ferries. So that the, what they did is they ran ferries between Massachusetts and the different sort of islands in the area. It's not that they're attacking the ferries. They were attacking the business, which, so the ships are still running. The navigational systems are fine, but ticketing was completely down. I think what you've, you've pointed out there is the vulnerabilities that the shipping industry does face. And, and you know, particularly the last case you were talking about. And I think this has been borne out by some of the larger port state controls. So the US, for example, they're now putting cyber requirements on ships that they have to comply with prior to entering port in the US. I think I've seen in the press only in this last week that the Australian Maritime Authority are looking 
to bring in similar requirements for ships visiting Australia. Obviously, the concern here is that ships may become disabled in these port mm. areas uh, and give rise to, as you say, knock-on effects, like the colonial pipeline you were talking about, you know, that can have wider reaching sort of unintended consequences, perhaps, to a wider sort of ecosystem of businesses and communities and et cetera. So I, d- I do think this is very relevant. So in terms of these claims that you've been highlighting, maybe we could just dig a bit deeper into the quantifiable losses that arise from these different heads of claims when, when a shipping company is attacked in this way. So maybe you could just walk us through what yeah. the, those sort of quantifiable losses might look like. Absolutely. I think, as I said, the last few years have really seen the rise of these very damaging ransomware attacks. But reading the press, I, it feels like they almost over-focus on the ransom payment. And having ransoms be the real driving factor in everything else is a distant consideration. However, I, I think a modern targeted ransomware attack has potential to generate costs in, in a number of ways. And I think one of the challenges is it can vary greatly by specific incidents. And you can have two companies that are very similar see very different outcomes from the attacks of these ransomware attacks. So I think if you look at most significant cyber incidents, they're generally always going to have costs for advisory services, which usually comes down to IT security type services, which could be forensics to investigate what happened and prevent it from happening again, or in the case of ransomware recovery services, which are essentially rebuilding PCs to a safe state and bringing them back up and running. And then the other piece that you often see are what's called the privacy council, which are often called breach coaches. And what they do is they'll advise on regulatory requirements, notification requirements, any sort of you know laws that may apply in a significant cyber incident. In most cases, you're going to run into those costs. I think they're usually relatively manageable because they are relatively frequent costs. They're relatively well understood. And I would say that the vast majority of incidents in the type of scale we're talking about are going to run into perhaps the low tens of thousands in, in, in aggregate. So between the Privacy Council and the forensics, you, you're generally talking tens of thousands kind of order of magnitude. Although if it's probably important to mention if you're in complex cases, if there's something really technically complex about it, or if it's a large case, if for whatever reason your environment's been really dramatically affected, the, these costs can easily rise into hundreds of thousands. I would say these are typically not the largest potential costs you're going to run into as a result of a cyber attack, however, although they are ones that people pay a lot of attention to because they're very common. So when I think about really large losses and where they're going to be generated from, here, here's a few that I think. So yes, first, the ransom. Uh, the ransoms have been moving upwards over the years. As I said, it was a few years ago, it was common to be extorted for just a few hundred dollars and it was easy to pay. I think nowadays, it's not uncommon to see multi-million dollar ransoms or even tens of millions. Because the attackers are doing their research nowadays, you might see a hundred million dollar company asked to pay somewhere in the five, one to five million range, but you can't count on a specific number. Uh, I think one example of that is really interesting was the, the Conti ransomware gang um, attacked the Broward County School District. And this one was interesting because the actual negotiations were leaked online. So you can find it if you do a search. They seemed really confused, the attacker gang. Now, you get differing levels of capabilities among these gang, gangs. 
they continually were pushing for 40 million US dollars and refused to back down. Obviously, a school district was not paying $40 million. That They kept trying to explain there was no way they were ever going to be able to pay that. And then in the end, they ended up not paying. But if you think about it, you can't really expect you know, a very strict amount. Although, like I said, the low millions is the kind of amount you could expect to see based on just what's happening today. The next thing I would look at and this is extraordinarily difficult to predict, I would say more difficult than ransoms are the business interruption costs. I, I think, you know, I've had a lot of incidents at relatively good sized companies in, into the kind of range we're talking about that led to no real business interruption. People worked around the issues or they were able to restore from backup quickly, or there was no real complexity in terms of getting everything running again. And I've also had much smaller companies in terms of number of IT systems or number of people, obviously high revenue because you need something to generate the cost. You can get massive business interruption from places you'd never expect to see it. I had one case where an inventory database was lost. It was an inventory and payment database and they didn't want to pay the attacker. And in the end, the company ended up going out of business, but they weren't able to function for weeks because they didn't know um, they didn't have all of this information they needed to operate as a business. And so sometimes it's just the BI is much, much worse than you think it's going to be. Although typically the larger the company that you've got, the greater the business interruption risk. Typically we're talking loss of profits. So if you're a, a large company with a good amount of profitability and IT complexity, those things are really going to generate a lot of BI risk. Going to the next one. I did mention this casually before, it is the, the ransomware gang stealing data. It does make it much worse when this happens because then it's not just the interruption or the ransom you're worried about. Now it's become just as bad as the traditional data breach used to be. And so you end up with a lot of data breach re response costs and those can get very high. Even if you pay the ransom, you're still, you've still lost that data. You're still typically gonna be on, on the hook for the types of notifications, the types of fines, class action lawsuits, and even things like credit monitoring costs, depending on where you are in the world where this happens, you can reach extraordinary heights really quickly on this. It's not inexpensive to do credit monitoring. It's not inexpensive to send a bunch of mail-based notifications to everyone, finding a bunch of addresses, postage, paper, all these things that are very normal, in particular in the United States, really drive enormous costs. I think it's outside of the US, that the situation can be a bit different. GDPR, a lot of folks have focused on the risk of large fines, but we're not seeing a lot of that. It's just not typical that a breach results in a fine under GDPR. It can happen and it has happened. It's just, that's not the, the norm. And notifications you can usually do via website or email, which can also reduce the cost. And the lack of credit monitoring will also tend to reduce cost. I'd say in data breaches with very large amounts of impacted personal data, it's not unusual to see costs in the hundreds of thousands or either, even millions of US dollars, depending on the data that's stolen and, and the requirements around it. So the, the, the last major component are the, uh, the digital asset restoration costs. And this really is the cost for IT experts to come in and rebuild the systems. That, that ransomware is taken out. Well, not too long ago, if you had a backup or if you paid the ransom, you could be back up and running pretty quickly. Nowadays, 
It's just recovery tends to be a very difficult process. There's a lot of IT complexity to deal with, and you companies typically need the expertise to come in and help them because it's it's on top of the IT load that they're already facing. And there can also be very specific behaviors that you see in malware, for example, that can make it very difficult to recover from. And so that is, you need the expertise on not just forensics, but you need the expertise in building Windows operating systems, building Windows servers, and, and of course, the project management element of it. I'd say you tend not to see external skill sets in specific business systems, databases, or networks. And those tend to be done by the company themselves. So it ends up being a bit of a mix. You've got the external support on more common systems. Then you've got the internal support for the things that are specific to a company. In terms of costs, the cost of remediation teams are typically in tens of thousands of dollars as a minimum, but they quickly escalate into the hundreds. It's, it, it can be very expensive when you need that restoration support for a company of the size we're talking about. For larger companies, for larger than we're, than we're talking about, it is not difficult to get into the millions of dollars on these restoration costs. I would say this doesn't even address, we're not even really talking about post-incident improvements, which are often not in the policies. Now, obviously, there's some betterment cover available in the better policies, but that is typically just bringing up to a certain level of security. But often what you find is once you get yourself up to that minimum level of security in that restoration, then you're going to realize there's a lot of things after that. So I haven't really talked about that because it's typically not an insured cost. If you're talking about, okay, we're relatively secure, this incident's contained, it's not going to happen again, but now we realize we need to be a lot better at security. And that's that can be very open-ended. So I think there are some other costs you might find on some cases like you know, class actions or other legal costs or other PR costs, but really the, the areas I've just spoken to are the most common that I've run into. Yeah, thank you for that. It's obviously um, a very complex claims area. And I, if I just try and pick out some of the points you were making initially, I mean, if we look at the vulnerability of the shipping industry as a whole to the risk of cyber attack, whether that be ransomware, malware, etc., just teasing out some of the points you make, and applying them to the shipping industry. Obviously, the shipping industry is highly transactional. It concerns itself with large and frequent payments of money to their service providers or by way of freight payments or charter hire payments. So there's great opportunity there for diversionary payment risk, which you did allude to. In terms of the research in the company has been a prospective target, obviously, shipping finances are very well understood now. And at the click of a Google search, you can find the financial information on many of the shipping listed companies. You can find what companies are chartering their vessels out for. You can look at the freight rate, in, freight rate indexes. And therefore, you can quantify quite quickly the types of turnover that these shipping companies are generating, their profitabilities, which of course leads into the value of the, well, or certainly the high value potential for a ransom opportunity. In terms of the access to these companies, obviously, because the company is based on shore, but also operates globally, uh, a number of remote assets, all connected back to home office IT systems. There is, there are a good number of doors that a hacker could potentially penetrate to gain access to shipping companies, IT and potentially OT systems. 
And, and just harking back to that point made earlier, if you can quantify what a day's delay would be on a ship, if you can give rise to delays across a fleet, then you're looking at a fairly significant business interruption cost. In terms of data and, and online access, quite a number of ships are involved in complex logistic supply chains, just-in-time deliveries, or they may be rely on booking systems. So I'm thinking particularly here in the containerized sector or the passenger shipping ferry sector. And I think you alluded to one case recently with a ferry company that had been recently attacked. Obviously, the, you, if you have a denial of service attack on any one of these companies, it can turn into a big deal for the company and, and could lead to, again, to significant loss of profits, business interruption. And then just looking at the sort of whole COVID overlay, we've got now remote working practices for the company ashore. We have disruption to leave rotors for crews on board vessels. They're serving much longer lengths of time on board these ships. So you have these sort of vulnerabilities from the personal Wi-Fi networks within people's homes. And you also have the, the sort of vulnerable employee syndrome where people become very disenfranchised when they're kept on board a ship for six months beyond their allotted contract. And that could give rise to some potential problems from a security perspective. And again, finally, just to summarize where we're looking at here, connectivity to ships is becoming ever greater. I think there's a lot of remote control from ashore. I think there's a lot of need for access for crew members on board ships to remain in contact with the, the loved ones and friends back home. This is opening up the channel for hackers potentially to gain access to these these shipping units and, and, and causing the mayhem that they perhaps can cause to shipping companies ashore. So I guess this all you know, leads us into the question around shipping company cyber resilience, which I guess comes in two parts. One is, is how does one improve upon resilience of a shipping company? I guess it's got to look at the ways in which one can bolster the, the cyber security around the IT and the OT environments, and perhaps also look from our perspective on how one would transfer these risks out of the company, which I guess is where our particular insurance product comes in. Uh, and given that you've been involved in claims that relate to insurable losses and non-insurable losses, I wonder if you might comment upon the benefits that you've seen from those clients who you work for, who've had the benefits of a cyber insurance policy in place. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think one of the key things about a modern cyber insurance policy is that especially for clients in the, the small up into the mid-tier sector, it's not just the policy that people are, are purchasing. If you're a large, sophisticated bank or a large, sophisticated defense company, you've probably got your own, your own global set of, of people that you work with. You've got a, a great deal of internal capability. Even in those situations, I think insurers have a lot of, of things they can help with. But I think especially when we're talking about a mid-tier company, that is probably the best place where the mix of financial support and advisory services that you get from a cyber insurance policy is really useful. Uh, I think it's sometimes hard for people to think of their insurer as being an expert in a cyber incident, but this insurance ecosystem has very much built around being very good at responding to incidents. And I would say there's been at least hundreds of thousands of cyber incidents responded to by cyber insurers. It might even be in the millions. I've 
trying to go through in my head and do some numbers on that, but it's an extraordinary number. And so there tend to be very experienced in dealing with these. Most of the time, unless you're going to a cyber incident response advisor or, or somebody that does this day to day, you as a company, most companies have not experienced hundreds of cyber incidents, hopefully, or any more than just one or two. As a result of this experience, these insurers have built extensive networks of different partners, as well as having this in-house capability. So they know how to monitor performance of vendors, um, of advisors. They know how to guide them to take things in the least economically damaging way. I think cyber, one of the things I really love about cyber and cyber insurance is it is one area where there's a really extraordinary degree of alignment between the insurer and the insured. Doing the right thing after a cyber incident is going to reduce your claim costs, is going to reduce the economic damage to your company. And that's really where the value is. I, I talked a bit about some of these earlier and probably don't want to go into too much detail again, but you look at the kinds of services insurers are frequently providing. It's IT experts, it's law firms, it's PR. All of those things can be you know, provided and managed by the insurer, or at least you get some assistance in managing them. And for ransomware in particular, one of the things that I think insurers are also very good at that might be underestimated by the, the sort of community at large is that there is a great deal of concern over the legal and regulatory requirements around attributing who's done the, the cyber attack and how you can legally pay it. There is a great deal of risk right now, especially for anyone that has any U.S. presence, to making a ransom payment. It's not something you just want to go and, and sign up and you know put your credit card into a a, a Bitcoin wallet and send the money across. It's extraordinarily risky to do that. The insurance industry is, has really built a, a good infrastructure around that. A couple of, of stories I'd just like to go into really quickly around incidents that I've worked on over the years that can give you an idea of how the cyber insurers and, and the ecosystems around them can assist. These are just two cases that I really remember, and these are ones that I worked on. So there was a, a global manufacturer was hit by targeted ransomware took the entire company offline. They were a, a very large company. They, they had a lot of different elements to their business, but because they traditionally hadn't held a PII, they were not very mature from a cybersecurity perspective. So they didn't really know very well what to do when they were hit. So they got assistance with the investigation, figuring out what happened, how the attacker get in. What did they do when they were in the systems? Restoration. So this is one that I think applies for any size company. You have relatively small company companies these days or mid-sized companies that have a really global presence. They can have 10 offices, even if each office is relatively small. Essentially, what they needed was somebody to help them rebuild in all these offices. So then you can get this assistance with restoration in places where you never expected to need restoration help. Of course, there's the, the legal and, and privacy complexities, which, which, which are typically helped with recovery of the funds from business interruption. And then lastly, PR support. This was a relatively well-known case. And so there was some requirement for, for PR, at least, in, at least in the United States, where the, the company was, was headquartered. So the other one is, is NotPetya. I know I'm going back to NotPetya again, but it is that attack was really a watershed moment in my mind in the history of ransomware. So it was a rural hospital, again, would never have expected to be hit, just like the manufacturer. They were hit by NotPetya. And... They could not get investigation support. 
because there was a natural con so many people have been hit at once there was a natural conflict of interest due to how the virus spread so if you were working for one component of the chain there was a conflict with working for another so this company this hospital was, was they were tiny and they could just couldn't get any help so the insurer was able to help with that sourcing restoration vendors and actually assistance in the sort of project management element of restoration again this was an early case this wasn't really that common before that because you just didn't have the big ransomware. So they weren't ready for it. They didn't have contracts written in the right way. So they needed legal assistance. How can I deal with my vendors? We never expected to require this. Some of the privacy implications were pretty extreme because it was, it was a hospital. And so there was US regulations around that. And then again, because it was known in the community that it was taken offline, they needed PR and, and messaging support. And all of that was provided with guidance by the insurer in that case. So I think the those are, you know, a couple of the incidents just to give you an idea that I've worked on that different companies were able to get a lot of support from the insurer. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think you make a lot of valid points there that there are sort of transferable to the shipping industry and resonate with, with the insurance product, the maritime insurance cyber product that, that uh, Shoreline provides to ship owner clients. I think if I can just tease out again, some of the, the highlights, as it were, of the cyber insurance product as we see it, as you mentioned, it provides immediate access to a global network of expert responders who supplement uh, the ship owner's own contingency plans and resources, which hopefully affect the immediate resolution of a cyber attack and the mitigation and the financial impact of the attack. As we've mentioned, and as you've borne out in your case studies, the policy will indemnify the ship owning company for its loss of profits, its additional operating costs, that might result from a, a cyber attack. And as our insurance product, our MCI product is enterprise risk-based, it goes beyond the mere indemnification of the ship's loss of hire to the overall company loss of profit. You talked about ransom payments and again, touched upon the complexity around about how you facilitate a payment. As you mentioned, we're steering into the areas of the dark web here and the murky waters of who the beneficiaries of these payments might be. Are they on OFAC lists? Do we have the right to make the payment to these individuals? Is it for personal gain or is it for more sinister terrorist type activity where we'd find ourselves in hot water where we to pay this without doing our due diligence? And I think that's really where experts such as yourself come in and can make sure the company's rest assured that it's doing things in an appropriate and well-documented and an audited fashion that you know, where it took circle back on them by some sort of regulatory authority, they would be able to demonstrate that they'd done everything in, in completely the, the right way. And again, you talked about data. Companies are relying upon their data these days. And certainly the insurance policy is going to assist a company, both commercially and legally, to manage the consequences of any theft of commercially sensitive data or personally identifiable information, which also comes with a heavy burden from a regulatory perspective. As you mentioned quite clearly, the policy is going to provide the legal and the PR support, as well as third-party coverage for any liabilities that might not be covered under other insurance policies. We talked earlier, early doors about, you, you mentioned this, about the sublimit for the cyber risk, uh, cyber crime exposure, I should say. And we've seen more recently, certainly in the market, that the availability of these limits has contracted significantly given the proliferation of ransomware attacks and the increased, sorry, the proliferation of diversionary payment attacks and the increased quantum of those attacks. 
but sublimits are still certainly available in the sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars rather than the millions of dollars. And indeed, you know, that is available within the shoreline program. And I think one thing we haven't touched upon here, but is important just to remind our listeners of, is the fact that our cover is not only in respect of malicious attacks, which is ostensibly what we've been discussing today, but we also cover non-malicious attacks, which might mean system failure or OT failure on board a ship owner's vessel, which they require immediate assistance for to get the, the operation back up and running, which I think is something that's quite often overlooked as a benefit of, of these insurance uh, policies that are evolving year on year. I think that summarizes quite succinctly our discussion today and its relevance to our particular industry. I think we can always learn from the experience of others in other industry sectors. It's been fascinating speaking with you, Anthony, and on behalf of Shoreline, we'd very much like to thank you for your time this morning. We're pleased to know that you are one of the responders that is, that is linked with our principal response company, Charles Taylor Adjusting. And it's good to know that we have the peace of mind that we have your company and others in support of our ship owners in their time of need, should they be fall victim to one of these unfortunate uh, cyber incidents. So, as I say, on behalf of Shoreline, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to speak again in the future. Yep, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increase maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.